We're on the second session, and I'm going to go pretty quickly through here because I want to spend more time talking about the actual feasts of the Lord and kind of what they mean in a very flying high over them, and then maybe some suggestions. If you want to start remembering them or in some way, I don't even want to use the word observe, but if you want to recognize the times and seasons, I've got some ideas for you to do either personally or as you guys grow in it, you might want to do it as a church. I'm not, again, advocating you have to do any of these things. The way I see this is very much it's an invitation from the Lord. Would you like to engage in this? If you do, it's kind of like a party. You know, you're invited to the birthday party, but you don't want to come to the birthday party. It's okay. Nobody's going to condemn you for it. We have a good time and whatever else you're doing. But if you'd like to come to the party, it's a it's an invitation. That's kind of the way that I look at the feasts right now, uh, as the Lord is showing us these things. So I want to start out by talking about how do we bring somebody to healing in at LL. Um, what our definition of healing, I, I felt like I needed to give you some of this because you haven't had all of our LL teaching. And so this course is actually a modular C course, and then I'm condensing it into three hours, something that I teach over the course of an evening and 12 hours on Saturday. So we're, you're getting a very condensed version of a modular C, and I feel like I need to lay you some foundations about what we believe healing is and why I think the feasts are so important to the restoration of the church as it really is supposed to be in its fullness and the coming together of the one new man and Messiah, Jew and Gentile. So our definition for healing at LL is restoring God's orders. order. It's not necessarily fixing somebody's sickness, Although what we find is when we bring God's order into every part of a person's life, physical healing happens. Emotional healing happens. Spiritual healing happens. People can be wounded in their body, their soul, or their spirit. People, I prayed for a man this week who was in a terribly traumatic accident. He wasn't physically injured himself, but when he came up on the accident, the person was nearly decapitated that he came to, menace, that he came to help. And it, it had a huge impact. A lot of fear went into him. And we ministered into that. His body, in a sense, was impacted by shock and trauma. And we needed to minister into that event that was now affecting him, not just in what he saw with his eyes, but down into his soul and into his spirit. So we can have something happen to our body that affects our soul and our spirit. We can have something that happens to our spirit, in a sense, that then begins to affect our soul and our body. And the same with our soul. We can have a damage into our soul man, which is our mind, will, and emotions. That's kind of the way we divide it up at LL. And you can have some false teaching. You can have some a distortion of expression of emotion or how people have a lot of bad understanding of how emotion should be expressed or not expressed. So you can have brokenness in any one of these three constituent parts. And when we're praying for people, we're asking the Lord, take us to where the brokenness is, and we pray into that. One of the reasons people don't get healing is because they're praying for the wrong thing. It's not that God's trying to hide the ball, but I believe that sometimes the Lord just does a divine healing and boom, you're fixed and you never know the root. But in this season, what I feel like the Lord's trying to do is show us how these things happen so that we can guard against them happening again. So we need to understand the roots a lot of times and the Lord takes us on a journey to understand that. And the significance of the things that we've done in our past or our family's done in our past and how they impact the family line. We teach that people are made up of these three parts. We experience brokenness in the body, soul, spirit. So here's our little image. Uh, we've got the three different parts of a person. The body is the bone, sinews, organs, brain and senses. The soul is the mind, will and emotions. The spirit is where our identity, our consciousness, our creativity and our worship is located. So this is kind of the way we break the person down. Now, can I tell you exactly where the spirit ends and the soul begins, the soul ends and the body begins? No, because I'm not God. But I do believe God and the Holy Spirit, through, through the Holy Spirit, can discern because the Bible says that he divides even between the joints and marrow, the soul and the spirit. So God can discern between those and he knows where they begin and end and where the damage is. So that's a Holy Spirit work. But we do this for a purpose of people looking back in their own hearts saying, Lord, where is the brokenness at? Uh, so we look for the root, the root problem. And for instance, people come all the time for different prayer. Oh, I've got sexual problems or dysfunction. I've got an illness. I've got depression. I've got loneliness, fear, migraines. Could be any number of 
physical, emotional, or even spiritual things. I've had young men, uh, people come to me and say, I try to read the Bible, my mind goes everywhere. I can't, I can't focus. Uh, I have a blockage here. Uh, I, every time I sit down to read the scriptures, I'm hearing uh, God, Jesus isn't God. Jesus isn't God. But I believe he's God. I believe I've accepted him as my Savior. Well, what's going on? There's something out of sorts in, that we need to find the root of. Because that's not normal. Do you understand? If somebody's accepted Jesus as their Savior, been filled with the Spirit, they should be able to hear God and they should be able to read the Word. So we want to find out where the root problem is. So it can be any one of... These are just examples. But instead of praying about the fruit, because Don could come to me and say, Oh, Pastor Matt, would you please pray for my migraines? Okay, Lord, please help Don's migraines to go away. Please help Don's migraines to go away. And he might even get better for a little bit. But then three weeks later, he's back. Oh, they came back. Now I'm having them every day or every other day or whatever. Well, that's because we're praying for the fruit. And what we want to ask the Lord is, where is the root of the problem? So this is some of our standard fair teaching. We lay this foundation in all of our courses. So where's the root? Is there rejection? Is there emotional trauma? Is there physical trauma? Is there unresolved grief? Are there wrong beliefs? Is there generational sin or iniquity? Um, is there a problem with trusting God? That was one of my big problems. And how I, had, how I got demonized was because my trust in God got broken. And then I didn't believe I could trust Him. And of course, the enemy came in on that, wrote in on that, and then held me into it uh, and, and spoke into my mind and affected me in a lot of different ways to run from this thing to that thing for security. Much healing has to do with reunification of a person's inner being where identity and purpose has been robbed. So, when the most broken people and when the enemy has tried to split a person apart, if we've got people that are dissociated um, or what I would call fragmented, and sometimes they're not even aware of the things that happen to them, you see a breaking apart of the person in their inner being, like a splintering. And when we were trying to get a theology of this, we were like, Lord, where is this in the Bible? Well, it's actually in Isaiah 61. It says he came to bind up the brokenhearted. The word brokenhearted there means shattered like a crystal vase being dropped on a stone floor and splintered. And when somebody has significant breaking, they can be even split into parts. It's their personality. They're not multiple personalities, but part of them gets split off. Now, this is not everybody has this. Most people don't. But in the severest cases, people are split, even like parts of them from a time period in their life are separated off and locked in. And then the enemy can be affecting them in that area. They can have even physical problems that they don't have in the other parts. It's very odd stuff and not our general fare of the people that we're ministering to. But when somebody has significant brokenness, there is a splintering of them. And the healing comes when those parts can be ministered into and then reunified with the whole of the person. Now the person isn't living one part. One part isn't over here locked away while they're living in the conscious in this part. So as I began to think about the one new man and as the Lord began to reveal these things to me, he was showing me that there was a breaking at the very heart of the church with this anti-Semitism and the rejection of their identity. This has to do with our identity. And so when we have a part of us that's held away, that's actually part of our identity, then there's, a, there's, a, there's like a, not a wholeness to us. There's a weakness. There's not a lack of strength. And there's something that isn't part of the whole and when we, be, when we welcome that part in, and one of the biggest challenges when people have been broken like this is for the rest of them to welcome the broken piece in, <laughs> if that makes any sense, to embrace the broken part, the, the part that got broken off or that was defiled or treated wrongly or abused. So there's a real important thing about coming together and being unified, and that's what the first point on your notes is. Uh, unif unity does not mean uniformity. What does unity mean? There's a couple definitions. The state of forming a complete and pleasing whole, especially in an artistic work. Isn't that interesting? We talked about the poem today, the artistic work. 
uh, synonymous with harmony, accord, and solidarity. What are the antonyms? Division, strife, and discord. Now, I'm making a distinction between unity and uniformity because the enemy wants uniformity. God wants unity. The enemy wants uniformity. So if you think of the Nazis and all the goose-stepping and everybody's dressed the same, you think of China, everybody's in black. You know, they want, the enemy wants uniformity. The Lord wants unity. And there's a big difference between it. Uniformity, here's the definition, the state of being uniform and uniform is having always the same form, manner, or degree, not varying or variable, consistent in conduct or opinion, everybody's got the same opinion, presenting an, un, uh, an unvaried appearance. Now, if there's unity, uniformity, is there any room for creativity and significant difference? Okay, so... I want to talk about the art of mosaics. What do you guys think this is, looking at it here? What is it? Cloth. Okay, good. What else? Anybody else see anything? Snake skin. Yes, that's what I thought of, actually. Anything else? What's that? Ties. Tiles. Oh, you're getting... Yes. Okay, that's true. It is tiles. Anybody else? Now that you've heard that, you're not going to talk. Okay. Now, what do you think those tiles are forming? But what's the mosaic? But what's the pattern? Tell me what the picture is. But what is it? What's it a picture of? Right. So let's back it up. Now, can you tell what it is? But there's some really odd-looking tiles in this, isn't there? Yellow and red? I mean, what, blue? What does that have to do with brown? <laughs> now, can you tell what it is yet? All right. So think about this. This is what the Lord is doing with us. Now, a lot of times, we're only seeing our one little tile. And we're thinking, well, they're not like us. Look at how outlandish they are. That's ridiculously outlandish, that part of the church or that, that different culture. But see, when you put it all together, when the artist puts it all together, it makes a beautiful picture, doesn't it? And this is what the church and what the one new man is supposed to be. It isn't all of us having the exact same identities. It's us having varying and quite sometimes different identities, but being taken together as the master puts us together and not rejecting. Like if all the browns said, we don't want any of that yellow or red or whatever, that's, that doesn't fit in with us. We wouldn't have any character to this thing, would we? In fact, it would probably be a tree with no leaves <laughs> uh, because that it, we want the brown or whatever. Uh, one of the keys that I want to talk about for unity versus uniformity and, and I have a little thing there of the problem of denominationalism. Denominationalism has its value in that it tries to preserve truth. But it, the problem with denominationalism is it preserves truth at the expense of unity. And the only way that unity is going to be able to come is through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the bottom line. Because he's got to be the poet. He's got to be the poet. <laughs> and if we're trying to be the poet, it ain't going to work out. That's a, a Virginia word I picked up when I lived in Portsmouth, Virginia. You ain't going, it ain't going to work out if we're trying to make the poem. The Lord has to be the poem writer. So we have to have the Holy Spirit. Pastor Joe and I were talking last night, and he said, I believe the two things that are going to define the church and kind of winnow out the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, or the, the, the tares from the wheat is Israel our position on Israel, and he said the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and I, I've thought about that some since he said that. I always thought it, it, as far as issues, contemporary issues, it would be the issue of Israel and the issue of, of uh, sexuality, the whole gender thing. Um, but, you know, without the Holy Spirit, then we're dead in the water with being able to discern because we, when we talk about the law, how do we apply the law? Without the Holy Spirit doing it, writing it on our hearts, it's it, and, and 
and helping us to understand the heart of the law rather than the letter of the law becomes very difficult. So I think maybe Pastor Joe has has something there. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, then we're just going to be washed away in in false doctrine, in uh, immorality, a distortion of of moral values, and all of that. So there's a value to denominationalism, but there is also this big danger that it brings splintering rather than unity. So we need to hold on to truth, but yet still be able to welcome people that look divergently different from us and maybe even have different theologies to some degree or another. Now, the where we cannot vary on theology, I'll just tell you this, is in the person of Jesus Christ. If we begin to take away from who the person of Jesus Christ is, we will be in, down the rabbit hole. We cannot let go of that. And, and, and the whole idea that God is one, echad, that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's still one. If anybody comes to you with another doctrine than that, you need to run the other way because it is an antichrist spirit. Where it will go to eventually is rejecting the work of Jesus and he will become a lesser person. They, they'll still say, well, we elevate him. We think he's great. That's all. But, you know, he's a good teacher, all those things. But he will, be, he will be lowered in his status. So do not let go of the, pers- the person of Jesus. It's all about Jesus we don't need to understand. I'll tell you a, a quick story. I was in relationship with a Messianic Jewish lady that was uh, born again in a Baptist church. She was one that began to teach me Hebrew. I loved her dearly. She had the first Passover Seder at our church, but at some point I realized there was something sliding here, and I began to ask questions. And I finally asked her and her husband to come to my office, and I said, listen, um, I want to ask you a, a point-blank question. I said, I've heard some, some things that concern me about your position on Yeshua. And they said, well, who would say that about? And I said, well, it doesn't matter who said what. My question is, is Jesus God? No. I said, okay, it doesn't matter how I found this out or what people said. That is a big problem. Well, you know, he is God, but he isn't God. I said, well, okay, let me ask you this. Is Jesus the same one as Jehovah? Jehovah of the Old Testament and Jesus. Are they one? Are they the same? Well, they're not the same. I said, okay, I understand they're different persons. We could say they're even different persons. Although I'm not sure that Jehovah is a different person. In fact, I think in the Old Testament, all of the theophanies were Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, appearing to the patriarchs. I think all the patriarchs knew him by vision or by him visiting them in his pre-incarnate state. So, that, but, but I said, are they the same person? No, they are not. Okay, then we've got a problem. And um, after I got done with that conversation, and I think the Lord's having me tell you guys this right up front, because if the enemy can't keep you away from this stuff, he will love to take you into legalism and into this antichrist spirit that goes on the other direction. And I've seen people that have headed down this way, and all of a sudden now they're Orthodox Jews denying the deity of Jesus. So this is not why we're going this way. <laughs> no, we, we don't want to do that. So I'm giving you this warning right up front. So she, they talked to me, and I was like, well, we, we've got to break fellowship then. We can't, you're di- well, we can still be friends. We can have this different view of things. I said, no, that is too core to what we're doing. And we cannot devaluate Jesus in any way in this picture. So after she left, I, even when I was praying, I was trying to pray to the Lord, and I'm thinking, well, if she's right, and I'm praying to Jesus, or I'm blaspheming. All, if, if I'm not recognizing, if I'm recognizing Jesus as God, and he's not God, and I'm blaspheming. And it was very, I began to get kind of confused. How do I even pray? How can we have unity if we don't even know who we're praying to? And You know what I mean? So when we got done and I took them outside and, and I said goodbye and I came back to my office, I sat down and I said, Lord, if I have gotten this wrong, I don't want to be an error. Maybe the church has been messed up all this time. You're trying to bring correction. I said, Lord, if I'm wrong, please show me. And you know what the Lord did? He spoke into my spirit right at that moment. And he said, Matt, I want you, I want you to think about this. He said, when I was in the desert being, being tempted, you remember he was taken by the spirit in the desert to be tempted? He said, what was the last temptation that was recorded in in the scriptures about me? And I said, uh, 
Well, uh, you were tempted to bow down and worship Satan. And he would give you all the nations of the world. Right? He would give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you would bow down and worship. And, and he said, well, what did I say to him? I said, well, you quoted Deuteronomy. He said, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And, and he said, did I bow to him? I said, no, you didn't. You went on from there, and that's why you didn't bring yourself under the authority of the enemy. He said, now, after I went out and did my ministry, did people bow down and worship me? I said, well, yeah, they did. He said, did I ever stop them? I said, no, not that I recall. I mean, angels have stopped people from worshiping them, but I've never seen you, when people were worshiping you, say, oh no, stop, don't worship me because you're supposed to worship God. Now, he said, there's your answer. Perfect legal argument, slam dunk. There is no possible way that Jesus cannot be God when he went out and received worship to himself after speaking to Satan and saying, no, no one will bow down to anyone but the God. He's saying, I'm God. You see how it's a slam dunk uh, uh, um, argument? It's a, a sealed. There's no way you can believe that Je either Jesus is a complete fraud or he is God. It can't be anywhere in between. So we need to keep hold of that. And anybody brings you any doctrine other than that, you run the other way from that because that's an antichrist spirit. The role of worship and unity. Uh, some observations from contemporary worship uh, are in your papers there. You can look at those notes. But it says... Uh, here, God inhabits the praises of his people. God invokes the presence of, uh, worship invokes the presence of the Lord. So what I saw as a worship pastor was this. I saw that when we came together to do worship, people didn't care about all the minutia of doctrine. And that almost always worship was generally focused on Jesus and his work. Now, that began to make me think, what, this is interesting. So worship is an absolute key to coming into unity. And I've seen the denominational walls come down as people have gathered together to worship the Lord. They're not worried about the theological minutiae when they're just singing to the Lord. So this brings me to the, to the point in your notes that says the centrality of Jesus. Jesus has to be central. The two keys to keeping on the right track with any of this during this time of transition in the kingdom when the Lord is bringing forth the butterfly is that we need to be worshiping the Lord and keeping our focus on Him and literally doing a lot of worship. Do you understand? Because the worship invites the presence of the Holy Spirit and we're talking about the Holy Spirit has to guide us in this and keep us unified. And then secondly, the other big thing, of course, is prayer. Prayer and intercession. One of the things the Lord showed me with LL is that we had to do more intercessory prayer. We had to gather more frequently. We had to spend more time in prayer, meeting with the Lord, because we need direct downloads from Him. It's, it, there isn't going to be a checklist, you guys. I wish that there was going to be like a 14-page outline, and this is how to walk through this season in the kingdom. But it's only going to come by walking very close with the Lord by His Holy Spirit and Him revealing the truth to us. The centrality of Yeshua, worship of Yeshua on a personal and corporate level is very important. Uh, it's talking about until we all reach unity in the faith and then the knowledge of the Son of God in Ephesians 4.13. Unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. And this is like a knowledge that's epigenosis, Knowledge gained through first-hand relationship. So we cannot have this distance where we're studying what other people's experience with the Lord has been. <laughs> we need to have our own personal experiences with the Lord. There's some amazing testimonies of Jews that have come to salvation in the last 10 years on a website called One for Israel. How many of you have heard of this? One for Israel has the most incredible testimonies of Jews. But almost always, there is some major experience with the Lord. And when they go back in the face of all their Jewish friends that are saying, how could you betray us? You're a traitor. You've given up Jesus. You're worshiping Jesus. And he's the reason we've had all our problems. They've been able to hold on to the experience that they had with the Lord. Now, we can't base everything on experience. But I thought this one Jewish lady that was a lawyer explained it very well. She said to her Jewish friends, I cannot explain to you uh, exactly logically how this is the truth. 
But I know by the experience I had with the Lord that he is the way, the truth, and life. He is the Messiah. And I have the rest of my life to see that in the scriptures. And that's actually, it's confirmed in the scriptures. You understand these experiences? Of course, our experiences cannot run our life. We have to test them by the scriptures. But as I took that experience I had with the Lord in 2009, where he said, you will teach the church about the feasts, and I began to study the scriptures, I thought, this is right. I mean, this is not inconsistent with the Bible. It's actually inconsistent with some of our theologies and interpretations, but it isn't inconsistent with the scriptures. When I got born again, when I got, when I surrendered to the Lord again completely, the Lord told me to do, he told me to put aside all my, all my Bible helps and my commentaries and all that stuff that I had. And he said, read the scriptures with no commentary and I will teach you. And so I began to read, and he began to open my eyes. Now, one of the biggest things he opened my eyes to right away was my distortion of what the person and work of the Holy Spirit is. <laughs> and once I got rid of the theological teachings and just read what the Word was, I was like, wait a minute. Something's off here. And that's when I came to the conclusion, Lord, I have to pray and ask you, because he said, I'll give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. I need to pray and ask him to fill me, to baptize me with his Holy Spirit. Yes, I'm going to use the word baptize. <gasps> In the Baptist, we use baptism all the time, but not with regard to the Holy Spirit. That was anathema. So when I asked the Lord to do that, then, then he did. You see what I'm saying? But I had to go back and see what the word said versus what man said. And this is the way it is with Revelation. We have to make sure we're checking everything with the Lord, <clears throat> but we need an experience with the Lord to solidify these things. It's a first-hand experiential knowing. I'm not going to go into the kingdom culture versus, we don't have time to develop that. I want to get to God's appointed times in our last basically half hour. These are a master key to unity, and I already shared with you at the beginning my story of how that happened. I'm going to share tomorrow how the Lord lit me up. I call it lighting people. The Lord lights people up about Israel. <laughs> have you been lit up about Israel? I mean, a lot of us have, and it's just a supernatural thing. I'll share more of that story tomorrow, but the whole part of the feast I shared with you, how it came in the fall of 2009 during Yom Kippur when I was praying and fasting and repenting of my own personal sins, family sins. Now we're at, we're at uh, section two where it says the unifying character of Levitical feasts. First of all, I want you to get out of the mode of calling them the Jewish feasts. The Jews will call them the Jewish feast, and they're not too thrilled that we're celebrating their feasts. I mean, they're, they're curious about it, but they're like, those are our feasts. What are you doing? You're a Christian. Okay, I'm just telling you, that's kind of their attitude about it. They're not necessarily going, hey, that's wonderful. Celebrate our feasts. They're thinking, hey, that's our feast. What are you doing? You're Christians. Go do your Christmas thing and your Easter thing, but don't be doing our feast. I mean, they find it interesting. But here's what the feasts do. They bring unity and worship. They celebrate the elements of God's redemptive plan. I'm going to show you that in a minute very quickly how each feast does it. They bring power through unity. And this is one of the biggest elements of it as the church is going into this phase where many Jews are going to start coming to salvation that the, the feast will give us a commonality so we can worship the Lord in unity. It's, about, it's all about worship and unified worship. And the feasts give us a framework for that unified worship. They bring power through unity. They are a tool for sharing the gospel with Jewish people. So I don't believe all the Jews are going to get born again and then they're going to go, uh, gee, I want to go back to Israel or we're being persecuted, so I'm going to accept Jesus. No, I think we're going to be helping them in their persecution and through our love and opportunities we have to share because every story of a Jewish person that I've seen, almost every single story, they take several months and years to process the experiences that they have with the Lord through Christians, through, through, through their words, and through their actions. And then they eventually come to the Lord. It doesn't happen in 15 minutes with your, uh, with your tract from Billy Graham with a Jew. 
because they're overcoming. And I'm not making fun of the track with Billy Graham. I mean, people get saved like that, that, but that's Gentiles. Jews have a lot of history against Christ, you understand? And it's been taught by the rabbis and they've experienced it. I remember a lady I, I, that came to one of our uh, Friday night services that I started holding to teach the people about the, these types of things. And a Jewish lady showed up at it. And she, she, we sang some songs. And in the songs, some of them we used Yeshua because they were written by Messianics. And some of them we used Jesus. And I, I, during my talk, I said, you know, the reason we do this Yeshua, we use Yeshua, it's the same word in Hebrew. But for a Jewish person, the name Jesus is very offensive. And, and they just have a visceral reaction to it. They don't really know why. So it's not that Jesus is wrong. It's just we're trying to be friendly to a people that have been quite offended by that particular word. So I said, I'm not offended by Jesus. People say, well, you're, Christ offends people. Well, not in that way. You know, the truth of the gospel is offensive, and we have to come to the truth that we need forgiveness. But when a word is simply offensive because in the name of Jesus, all of these bad things have happened, we need to be willing to maybe say, is there a different word or phrase? And his actual Hebrew name is Yeshua. Well, afterwards, the lady came up to me and she said, you know what? When we were singing, I could sing the songs with Yeshua. But when we sang the ones with Jesus, I couldn't say it. I just couldn't say it. She said, you know what happened to me when I was little? She said, I had a little Catholic friend, girlfriend, and we were the best of friends. And at six years old, I remember waiting for her under the tree. And she got off the bus from school and she came up to me and she just started beating me and beating me and beating me. And she was saying, you killed Christ, you killed Christ, you killed Christ. And our parents had to come pull us apart. Now, when that is your experience, listen, then the name of Jesus carries some real negative things. So I'm not saying eventually they won't be able to say it, but in the initial phases, sometimes we have to do something gentle to introduce them. And so the feasts make a way for us to bridge for a sharing of the gospel. Leviticus 23 is where it's found. I'm not going to take time to read them because I want to get into what they mean. Uh, it, but at the beginning, it says, the Lord, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. And so I don't want you to call them the Jewish feasts. <laughs> They are God's appointed times. They are God's appointed times. Yes, the Jews have celebrated them all these centuries and millennia, but they are God's appointed times, and that's what he calls them. Moed, an appointed time to be with the Lord. We translate it feast, but it's actually a, just a fixed day on the calendar. With a lot of the feasts, there's eating, <laughs> so it makes sense. But some of the feasts, there's no eating at all, including Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So it's not really perfectly accurate to call it a feast. It's more like a festival or a time of remembrance, a time when you stop uh, to consider uh, the truths related to that particular feast about God's redemptive work in the earth. Mikra is a convocation. In most of the feasts, there's an encouragement to have a convocation, which means a gathering. It involves a dress rehearsal. A lot of the feasts are rehearsing, especially the fall feasts, the coming of Messiah. We're rehearsing for it. So that's what mikra or convocation means. Kara, you shall proclaim it, to call out to them that are bidden to mention it, to publish it, and to read it. And this is why I call it an invitation. Whosoever will may come. You're invited to the party, but nobody's required. We're not saying you have to come, Christians. If you, if you don't want to do it, cool. <laughs> you know? but, and we don't have to give up all your other holidays. It's wonderful. You know, I, you can still do Christmas. It's all right. Did you know that? I know that Christmas has some pagan roots and all of that, and I'm not going to get into it. But I'm saying one of my best Jewish friends in the world, he went, he was Jewish to the max in New York City and the Bronx, basically, or Queens. And he went with his buddy to a Christmas mass on Christmas Eve. And he walked in and he felt joy. And he has this whole testimony he does. It was it the beer or was it Jesus? Because he was drinking heavily before they went to the Mass. He was with his Catholic friends and they were drinking. They put their beers down, went to the Mass, and then they sat in Mass and he felt joy. And he thought, I've never felt that before, but maybe it's the beer. So he waited an entire year and then he went back 
because he couldn't get away with it without everybody knowing. And because he's Jewish, he would have gotten in trouble. So he went back to the Catholic Mass on, on Christmas Eve a year later and didn't drink a drop. He pretended to be. You know, he carried the bottle around, but he didn't drink anything. And then he went with his buddies and he felt joy. And from that, he knew there was something to this. And from that, he, he went and visited a Bible study and he got born again. By the way, that was in the Catholic Church, okay? Uh, it was a charismatic Catholic Church, but it was the Catholic Church. Healing of the body of Messiah through celebrating the feasts. We talk about the root. Now, this is where the root comes in. And one of the things the Lord said to me about this is we've gotten off with this, and I want to bring healing to it. And until there is healing, this unity between Jew and Gentile can't come because there was a split that happened at the beginning. Not only was there all that anti-Semitism, but I'll show you how the feasts were split off. And what I will tell you is the way I feel is we as Christians have been robbed because all the feasts point to the truth of Yeshua. They're about resting in the Lord. They're about renewal. Um, they're a prophetic guideline. Did you know all the feasts were fulfilled within the days of the feast? Passover, first fruits. Jesus was raised from the dead. He, was, he died on Passover. He was raised from the dead on the feast of first fruits. He gave the Holy Spirit on Shavuot, or Pentecost. That was the end of the spring feast. Then there's a pause, and we go to the fall feasts. Now, the fall feasts all are all about his future uh, work. So we're kind of in that pause between the spring and the fall feasts right now on a prophetic timeline. There's joy, celebration, and restoration in the feasts. I can't tell you how many times I've celebrated it with Jews and Gentiles, and there's just joy in it. I don't know what it is. It's just the joy of the Spirit comes. People, These Christians are doing crazy stuff they've never done before, building a sukkah or shaking a palm frond, and they're like totally into it because the Spirit of the Lord is there. And you're doing these weird things that you haven't ever done before. But it's because they're about the Lord and His heart, I just, His heart is happy when He sees this happen because it's all of His kids worshiping together. It's the, the foretaste of glory divine. You know what I mean? Remember that old hymn we sang? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. They engage our whole being in worship. This is another important thing. In the West, we are very cerebral. But the Hebrew mindset was very much about stories and about physical actions. And so the feasts allow us to engage our bodies, actually, in these activities that bring truth into our spirit. It gets us out of our head. You know what I mean? This is a key principle about the feast. We must keep their true purpose and person central. That is Jesus. They're about worshiping King Jesus by trusting and resting in Him. They're all about Jesus. The appointed time of Passover, He dies and delivers us. That's what Passover in the Old Testament was about. Deliverance from Egypt, or deliverance from the world through the blood of the Lamb. Uh, the unleavened bread is the feast that follows right on Passover. He purifies us. First fruits, he raised from the dead. He, raised, he was raised from the dead. Pentecost, he sends his spirit. Trumpets, he returns the second time. Day of atonement, he judges the earth. And tabernacles, he celebrates with us. That's kind of the summary, nutshell, of what all the feasts mean. Now, we, we're going to try to dive into their meanings a little bit in the 20 minutes we have left, but we're probably not going to get a lot of meat on that bone. So that's why I would encourage you to get the book and it'll give you some more understanding of the principles. I want you to understand the principle behind the feast, not how to do it. I had people say, well, this was great. I love this book. I, I'm so excited about doing the feast. How do I do them? I said, I specifically left that chapter out because I don't want people saying, oh, this is how you have to do it. But I've gotten enough requests and I feel like the Lord has given me enough now that I can say, here's some suggestions, but please do not do things religiously. It's not about what you do. It's about the heart behind it. The Lord is very merciful about things. Us Gentiles, we don't have a clue how offensive pork is to Jews. And, and as a general proposition, I try to avoid pork when I'm around Jewish people because it's so offensive to them. It's so much in their DNA. But, you know, you could serve pork at your Passover dinner with a bunch of Gentiles and, and it would be totally inappropriate for how you would normally celebrate Passover. But I think the Lord would be like, you know, that's okay. I'm glad they're doing it. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm glad they're somehow participating in these things. Spring holidays, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost. We talked about that. 
and the fall holidays are trumpets, Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. Now, if you've got Google, you can Google this and you will pull up this image. I don't know who originally created it. It doesn't have any copyrights on it, but it's a handy uh, teacher. Um, here's another way to look at it. So it shows you where they normally fall on our calendar. Because the Hebrew calendar goes on the moon and our calendar follows the sun because it's a Roman calendar, um, it, it is... It, it, it falls in different times on our calendar. Do you understand? Because we're running on a sun calendar versus a moon calendar. And God, the biblical calendars are all based on the moon. So this is a nice representation of where they fall in our year. So they, they will shift some days um, based on the, you know, the year. Where did things go wrong? Well, I think that the breaking of the, the feasts away from the church uh, was already starting with some of the anti-Semitism that we read about earlier. But it really happened to, it really was rooted into the church of the separation of us from our Jewish, from our old covenant identity at the Council of Nicaea. And at the Council of Nicaea, it was a gathering of church leaders that was instigated by Constantine. And Constantine, there's no real evidence he was ever really born again. I mean, he talked about seeing a cross, and it says, by this, the, by this sign conquer. And he was friendly to Christians. But there's a lot of speculation that his motivation was he saw a good way to unify the empire and to keep control and keep power. Now, whether he was or wasn't born again, all I know is some of the things that he's written and were involved from the Council of Nicaea, which he instigated, were very anti-Semitic. And it's where they began to separate the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the Feast of Passover. There was a specific decision made by the church leaders that they would separate the dates of the celebrating of Passover, which was determined by the Jewish rabbis and their calendar. They set when Passover was, and the Christians didn't like it. We don't want to be beholden to their calendar. We want to have our own calendar, and we're going to set Easter when we want to set Easter, regardless of whether it's associated with Passover. Up until that time, all the Christians were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus in conjunction with Passover. It's historical fact. That's what the church was doing. But when, after the Council of Nicaea, they began to separate the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from Passover, and they began to force the entire church to recognize Easter, and then it became more vitriolically anti-Semitic and against the feasts as we move forward in history. And I'm going to show you some quotes. That's what this is about. We also send you good news. This is the letter of the Synod in Nicaea to the Egyptian church. We also send you the good news of the settlement concerning the Holy Pesach, Pasch. This is a Hebrew, an Anglicized or, or whatever language it was at the time, um, word for Pesach, which is the Hebrew word for Passover. The Paschal lamb comes from Pesach, okay? Um, Namely, that in answer to your prayers, this question also has been resolved. All the brethren in the East who have hitherto followed the Jewish practice will henceforth observe the custom of the Romans and of yourselves and of all of us who from ancient times have kept Easter together with you. And then this is Epiphanius of Salamis wrote in the mid-fourth century of the Nicene Council, the festival of the resurrection was thenceforth required to be celebrated everywhere on a Sunday and never on the day of the Jewish Passover, but always after the 14th of Nisan on the Sunday after the first vernal full moon. The leading motive for this regulation was opposition to Judaism, which had dishonored the Passover by the crucifixion of the Lord. Now, I want you to get hold of this because it was never a scriptural thing, or it, it was not doctrinal. It did not come from the Word. The motivation for separating it, and this is a guy that's not even speaking of it as a negative thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Epiphanius of Salamis was writing this not in a negative sense of, oh, well, that's anti-Semitic. He was saying this is why it had to be done and it's a good thing. So this is the words of a person that was supporting the proposition, but he's saying the reason we did this was not because it was biblical, but because we wanted to disassociate ourselves from the Jews. 
We didn't want them dictating our program. We didn't want to be associated with them. So there's definitely anti-Semitism. Maybe they were fearful of being persecuted like the, the Jews were. They didn't want to be a sect of Judaism, which is what it, Christianity was in its early stages. Constantine wrote this at the Council of Nicaea. It appeared an unworthy thing that in the celebration of this most holy festival, talking about the resurrection, we should follow the practice of the Jews who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. Let us then have nothing in common with this detestable Jewish crowd, for we have received from our Savior a different way. Here's Theodoret recording what Constantine was saying. It was in the first place declared improper to follow the custom of the Jews in celebration of the holy festival, the resurrection of Jesus, because their hands having been stained with the crime, their minds of these wretched men are necessarily blind. Let us then have nothing in common with the Jews who are adversaries, avoiding all contact with the evil way, who after having compassed the death of the Lord, again, they're blaming Jesus' death upon all the Jews exclusively, being out of their minds, are guided not by sound reason, but by an unrestrained passion, wherever their innate madness carries them, a people so utterly depraved. Therefore, this irregularity must be corrected in order that we may no more have anything in common with those parasites and the murderers of our Lord, no single point in common with the perjury of the Jews." <laughs> So again, we see that motivation was not biblical motivation or theological. It had to do with being anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic. Now, this is fast-forwarding to the Council of Antioch, which was about 30 years later or 20 years later. Uh, the council decreed at Antioch, if any bishop... Now, at first they said, you can't associate Passover with, with uh, resurrection. So... Easter, what we call Easter, Resurrection Sunday, cannot be celebrated in conjunction with Passover. We won't do it. We're going to separate it all so that they're Jewish and we're Christian. Now you fast forward. So don't do it, they said. This is what we've adopted as a church. So you celebrate a Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday separate from this. Now they move forward. It says, if any bishop, presbyter, or deacon will dare after this decree to celebrate Passover with the Jews, the council judges them to be anathema from the church. That means they're churched. They're kicked out. This council not only deposes them from ministry, but also any others who dare to communicate with them. What is this coming out of? Because a lot of the church said, wait a minute, this isn't right. And we're not going to do it. We're still going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in association with Passover. And we're not forsaking all of the biblical feasts. So they were doing their own thing and the church was responding to that and now saying, if you do any feasts, if you celebrate uh, Easter or resurrection in relationship to the Passover, we're going to church you and put you out of the church because it's basically a cardinal sin. The council at Laodicea decreed in Canon 29 that Christians must not Judaize by resting on Sabbath. Now this is even yet a stronger uh, opposition. Now you can't not just celebrate Easter in, in con conjunction with Passover, but you shall not rest on Sabbath. You must work on Sabbath is what the church is saying. Even though the Sabbath was never done away with in the scriptures, it's not theologically done away with. Now I'm not saying you need to start worshiping on Sunday, on Saturday. People always come up and say, we, we have to worship on Saturday. Saturday. Celebrate every day of the week for all I care. Okay? And do it on Sunday. And I don't see a problem with keeping your Christian identity in that way. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be hostile to Saturday worship. I've been in churches where they're like, we will not do a Saturday service because that's Sabbath worship and that's of the devil. Well, where did that come from? It's not theologically accurate. <laughs> if, you look at the, if you look at the history. Uh, and, it, and it says, they, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day. And if they can, resting then as Christians. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers. So now they're claiming that they're Judaizers, which is basically saying they're working their way to salvation. Let them be anathema from Christ. So that's kind of the history of how the, the church got separated from the feasts. And um, I just think it would be maybe appropriate to pray before we move on for just a couple of minutes about the feasts, to say, Lord, we just ask you to forgive us if we've been negative about the feast. Most of us just were ignorant about them. But Lord, if we've ever been negative or we've received anything negative of teaching about the feasts, we just ask you, Lord, we forgive those people that gave it to us. 
And Lord, we want to be corrected about your purposes for the feast and how they fit into our life as believers now. Father, we don't want to go into legalism or trying to be better because we celebrate the feast and this other church doesn't or I celebrate the feast and these other people don't. Lord, this is an invitation from you. And Lord, you're not forcing anybody into it. So we just ask you that this would be the way that it would be received. And we come against anything of the enemy that would take people down a path that is other than just wanting to know more and understand more about your redemptive work as it's revealed in the feasts and how it's going to connect us uh, to our brothers and sisters in Messiah that come from a Jewish background. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of the things, and I'm probably going to leave off teaching you the specifics of each feast because I could go into how each one represents the redemptive work of Jesus in more detail. There's some incredible things. Let me just give you one as an example because I'm not going to get to all of them. But let's take Pentecost, for example. How many days after Passover is Pentecost? 50 days. Okay. Now, if you look back in the Old Testament, have you guys had any teaching about this? About Pentecost? How many of you have heard the association between Pentecost and Sinai? Okay. So three or four. So it's worth me going over. So if you look at the scriptural dating from the time that the original Passover happened in Egypt till the time that the children of Israel arrived at Sinai, you come to exactly like 48 days and they had a couple days or three days of purification. And then Moses went up on a mountain and by Jewish tradition received, received the law on day number 50 after Passover. Now, if you fast forward to Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus died on the cross, you remember he, went, he, went, he was ascended at the 40th day and then he told them to go wait in Jerusalem till he sent the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell. Now, if we go to the Hebrews, it talks about the law being written upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So the, this, we, Pastor Joe and I were talking about this rejection kind of of the law. Oh, the law is passe. We don't need the law anymore. We don't need the details of the law. We just love each other, but we don't define what loving each other is anymore. Yeah. Loving each other could be having sex outside of marriage, according to our culture now, right. couldn't it? So the law isn't passe, kids. I'm just telling you, and you're, most of you are older than me, but I'm going to call you kids anyway. We've got to understand that it, the law is not passe. It is still in effect. Now, how we carry that out is, is, is up to discernment by the Holy Spirit because the Lord wants us to get the heart of it. He doesn't want us to get ground down into the legalism of it. But there is truth to the fact that we are not to have sex outside of a covenant relationship. And if we do, we're opening ourselves up to the demonic. So it's so interesting to me that at the time that God gave the law, it parallels exactly with the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now here's another nugget for you that the Lord showed me through understanding the feasts. When there was this whole thing that entered into the charismatic movement with what I would kind of call strange fire, some weird stuff going on that I, people were calling the Holy Spirit, but I was like, I'm not sure about this. The Lord showed me this. He told me very clearly one time when I was in one of these meetings, he said, this is worship of the golden calf. And he said, whenever the Holy Spirit comes in power. So a lot of times when there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you are going to see something counterfeit come alongside and try to take people away. Because it happened at Mount Sinai. When God, when God took Moses up in the mountain, he was receiving the law he came down and the people were worshiping the golden calf. Why? Because they wanted to see something with their eyes. And this is what will lead us away in signs and wonders. Oh, I want to see something amazing. Well, the enemy can do amazing signs and wonders. So he will take you off into deception if that's your focus. What does our focus need to be? Our focus needs to be the healer, not the healing. If we have our eyes on the healer, so these things parallel perfectly. When we have an understanding of the feast that at, that the, the feast of 
Pentecost relates directly to the time of the receiving of the law. At the the time of the receiving of the law, there was this false god that came in and tried to take people away and led many people away. Similarly, when there's outpourings of the Holy Spirit in our time, the enemy's going to be right there with a counterfeit thing and we've got to be on guard for it. And we can't call every manifestation something from the Holy Spirit. So you see, when we start getting hold of the feasts, how they will help us with our theology, even in our end times theology. And I don't know how this all pans out, you guys. I'm just throwing, I'm kind of throwing out thoughts for you to think about. But if the first set of feasts was fulfilled in the exact number of days that it exists, why wouldn't the fall feasts be fulfilled in the exact number of days that they occur? Now, that blows my whole eschatology of how things, I was taught that things would fall out. But, and I don't even have my head around that, so I'm not writing a book on it. I would love it if the Lord would reveal how it all works. He probably won't, though, um, because he keeps some things veiled. But it would be, um, these, these feasts are absolutely important to understand the prophetic time that we're in. And I've just given you a little taste of how Jesus is represented in the feasts by talking about Shavuot. But he's in Passover, he's in Yom Kippur, he's in, in, in the Day of Atonement, rather. He's in, um, which is the same thing, but I'm trying to use the American word, or the English word, the Feast of Trumpets. I mean, blowing the shofar, you guys, I'm just telling you, it is powerful in the spiritual realm. The enemy hates it. Why? Because it reminds them Jesus is coming. I think every time you blow the shofar, the demons are like, wait a minute, Oh, oh, false alarm. But I don't, like, I don't like hearing that because it reminds me that my end is coming. And I remember the first time I blew the shofar in my church. People were like, what is that? A dead cow, you know, mooing, you know. And, but it changed the spiritual atmosphere in the sanctuary. So, you know, I'm not telling you to bring a shofar in every time your pastor's preaching, blow a shofar. Please don't do that. Do, the first time I had it blown while I was leading worship, I was like, What's going on? You know, what is this noise? And, and the person had warned me it was coming, but I, I, I didn't really know what a shofar was at the time. But I'm telling you, the shofar is important. Uh, it's, it's a tool of warfare, spiritual warfare. It is a physical warfare in the Old Testament, but it's a spiritual warfare that we use it for now. We need to understand these things. And I know it seems ridiculous. Shaking the palm frond on Feast of Tabernacles celebrating before the Lord with, the, with, a, with a frond or any kind of a, a tree or something. There's something that's released in our physical act that's saying by faith, in your face, Satan, we are going to be celebrating with Jesus someday at, his, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what we're looking forward to. And we're shaking this palm frond. You may make fun of us or bad people mock us, but we're thinking of the future and by faith we're doing these things. There's something of doing that in the physical that's powerful. It's like baptism. Baptism isn't just about an outward sign of an inward change. It is that, but it's something of a combination, you guys, of connection between the physical act and the spiritual decision inside. And this is what the feasts are all about. Final thoughts. We need to be about the Father's business at this time for each of us. We need to know what that business is for us. Are we willing to be like Ruth? I've got a whole message on Ruth. Have you ever heard the, the book of Ruth preached from the perspective of the one new man bringing together Jew and Gentile? It's a, quite a powerful allegory of the one new man. Um, are we willing to forsake what is familiar to us and move in a place in order to move into the place of blessing? As Ruth did, she had to leave what was familiar in the Moabite land. To, to something that was unfamiliar, but she knew there was God there. She said, my people will be, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And there's something the Jewish people are carrying that we've lost a bit of. They don't understand the Holy Spirit or Jesus, but we don't understand the law. And last year when I was in, in Jerusalem, and I saw the, the Jewish people dancing around Torah, the, with the Torah, the Lord took me, he opened my Bible to Nehemiah in chapter, and I think it was chapter eight or seven, whichever one it is where it's talking about them celebrating a Feast of Tabernacles. 
And he said, they're dancing with the Torah and their love for the Torah. And you guys are dancing with me, the word, Jesus. But they're one and the same. And I'm going to bring you guys together so that you're both going to love each other's lover, <laughs> so to speak. And the feasts are important to them. Are we prepared to say your people shall be my people and your God my God? And deal with potentially the persecution. And that's going to be one of my challenges tomorrow in the message. Um, are we willing to walk this, this road? Because I think it's, the Lord is calling us to prepare ourselves for it. Okay? I want to pray for you and then I'll turn it over to Pastor Joe because we said we'd get you out by 1230. Lord, I thank you. Uh, for even in the skies, which I didn't get time to talk about, but you've affirmed the first feast and the last feast by even the blood moons and the tetrads that came recently. You're saying to the church, look, church, this is important. Get Get a hold of this. This is important. This is something I'm doing in your time. And it's exciting times, Lord, but we want to be anchored to you not be blown about by every wind of doctrine. We pray that each person would test this, Lord, with you. They would search the scriptures. If they have doubts or concerns, Lord, they're not just going to swallow it whole, but they're going to say, Lord, is this really you? And Lord, they're going to discern it. And so we ask that they would do this with anything they receive. Uh, and even with this, Father, that, that you would show them the truth. Because if they can receive it as your truth, not just something Matt Moore says, then it's going to be real truth in their spirit. And that's what I want for them. I ask you for that, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you take them on a journey of truth. And Lord, you would keep them from going over the cliff either way, but they would stay on that straight and narrow path with you as you guide them forward. Thank you for this opportunity to share with this group of people. I just pray you'd seal in the work that you've done. The enemy would not be able to rob anything, distort anything. We come against distortion in Jesus' name. And we pray, Father, that everything would, they would hold on to truth and nothing of lies. Anyway, the enemy's distorted it. We pray a straightening out of that in Jesus' name and then seal in the good work. Lord, if I've said anything out of my flesh, I pray that it would fall away and become nothing, but everything that's from your spirit would be sealed in now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.